The best place to play fantasy football this summer is Underdog Fantasy. Their Best Ball Mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money, and the best part is you just draft your fantasy team, and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you your best score each week of the season and the highest scores at the end of the year. The champion of Best Ball Mania last year drafted in June, so there's no time like the present to join Underdog and take your shot at a million-dollar draft. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with promo code PFF. Also, if you play 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store, play $10 with code PFF, and draft your best Ball Mania team today. Here we are on a lovely Monday, late May Monday. I don't know how you guys are doing out there. We had a bit of a heat wave here in the D.C. area over the weekend. So I hope everyone survived that. And we're going to do the Monday review show, but with a theme today. And those of you who listen to this podcast, first of all, thank you, of course. Um, but beyond that, you know that. While I try to not be too dunk-focused or negative on the social medias because it's accessible and and that's the way it goes, um, I do like to get some grievances out here on the podcast. And so what we're going to do this week is I'm going to go through some stuff that I've seen over the last week, over the last couple weeks, over the post-draft off-season and I'm going to be doing a little bit of hating. And this is going to be the first annual Haters Ball here of the Unexpected Point. So the Unexpected Haters Ball edition, first annual, although it may end up being something that you know happens a little bit more often than, <laughs> than once a year with all the things that I have to hate on. So without further ado... We're going to get to the first annual Unexpected Points Haters Ball. I hate you. I hate you. I don't even know you. And I hate your guts. Now, of course, that was a clip from uh, one of the best shows, uh, sketch comedy shows of all time, Chappelle Show, and the Haters Ball skit sketch that he did on there. One of the best sketches that they've done also on there. So what are we going to start with first? What are we going to start hating on first here? And again, we're not just trying to hate, we're trying to educate, hating and educating at the same time here. That's what I would say is is the formula of this uh, this podcast. And the first thing I'm going to talk about, first thing we're going to hate on as part of this podcast is recency bias, particular recency bias with quarterbacks. (laughs) So when we're talking about recency bias with the quarterbacks here, there are a couple of podcasts that I listen to. So these are podcasts that I like that have come out with some quarterback rankings over the last week. I know that I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I know that Eric Eager and George Jahuri at the PFF Forecast podcast came out with some quarterback tiers that they have. I believe Seth Galina came out with some quarterback tiers for us in a written piece on the PFF website. Didn't have any issues with, with that. But I want to dig into the tiers that I saw or rankings that I saw on the Athletic NFL show and the Mina Kimes show. So both of these were done in a draft format. The athletic NFL show between Robert Mays, uh, Nate Tice, who are commonly on the show, and then also another co-host they have bring in once a week, Lindsey Jones. So they they rank there. The twist here for theirs, which I think I would, I'm interested in doing, but I wouldn't want to because I think it confuses things a bit, is that they are saying we're going to take contract in, into consideration and we're going to look over the next four years and taking contract into consideration which is an interesting twist and I think there's some good thoughts about that but I also think that what ends up happening is sometimes you really put a big 
emphasis on the contract in trying to fit guys into certain positions. Other times in these rankings, it seems to be almost completely ignored. The other thing, of course, when you're talking about a four-year window is you're looking at age. What are the age considerations there? And again, this is something where I think it's a, I think that's a better thing to bring into the consideration because we have a better idea of the linear no- notion of, you know, you get older, you have fewer years left, what the value is there versus the contract stuff. Um, but again, it, it can complicate things in, in the ratings. For Mina's podcast, and this was Mina and um, Field Yates who were going back and forth again. It's like they're like drafting these in both of these as, as they're going back and forth here. There's no consideration of contract. It's just saying a three-year window. So you're going to include age as as part of that in a three-year window. Much simpler. I kind of like the, the stripped-down notion of that. But uh, I don't believe Mina did this exercise last year, but I know that she did a couple of years ago, and I remember some of that. So we, we can talk about some of the changes when we talk about the recency bias that is going into some of these rankings. So first, I got to start right up at the top when it comes to these. And the... NFL, the athletic show had Justin Herbert above Patrick Mahomes. Now, again, when you bring the contract into it, that seemed to be almost everything that Robert Mays with that first pick was leaning on was the fact that Herbert over the next four years, assuming that you franchise tag him, I guess, for two of those years, because he only has, um, no, actually, I guess you franchise tag him for one of those years because he has two years left on his contract, a uh, fifth-year option, and then you would need a franchise tag that he is half the value of Patrick Mahomes over the next four years. So we don't really know what the non-contract thoughts are on there, although I believe Nate Tice did say from a coach's perspective he could see why someone would want Herbert, period, because of how he just straight executes an offense as opposed to what Patrick Mahomes does there. Um, the reason that the contract stuff gets a little tricky is because, well, you know, what if – you know, Mahomes, they they loaded a lot of the cap benefits early in the contract to lower the cap, so which is now not going to be there. They're going to restructure this thing a billion times. So what his actual cap hit is going to be over the next four years is going is pretty questionable at this point. And of course, with Herbert, you know, they'll re-sign him to a big deal, they'll lower the cap hit, but they'll throw a ton of money at him. So there are just so many ins and outs and push and pull within these contract negotiations. I think it's difficult there. So I'm not going to focus too much on the Herbert Mahomes question because I do think they lean mostly on contract there. Now I will go over when I start my hating here is to look at the Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes comparison. And we're going to see this a lot. This is what I'm going to hate on is those who are saying recency bias I think is a heavy, heavy, heavy component here in ranking Josh Allen above Patrick Mahomes. And that's what Field Yates did in this exercise. Again, I like Field. I'm not, you know, not personally going at him because I think this is going to be a big thing that we're going to see out there. But I think we need to talk about why that is a mistake. And I think a fairly obvious mistake to say Josh Allen, you'd have Josh Allen ranked above Patrick Mahomes. One, you know, people respond to, incentives people respond to something that's interesting you know you're not putting things out in the media to have it ignored and to say you know Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL after having said that or come close to saying that in the 2019 offseason because he won the he won the MVP in 2018 almost definitely saying it in the 2020 offseason um because they went through and they won the championship in in 2019, he had that spectacular run in the playoffs, probably saying it again in the 2021 offseason and now saying it again in the 2022 offseason. Not that interesting. I get it. Mahomes had a little bit of a down stretch last year. I understand that. Josh Allen had a fantastic playoffs at the end of the year. All that ended up happening. But the problem is you're really looking at here a very tiny, tiny sample. You're just focused on this tiny, tiny sample at the end of the season for Allen and then discounting the much larger sample of excellent play for Mahomes. I did an exercise here where I looked at starting at their 500th drop back. I said for the 500 previous dropbacks, what was their average expected points added on this? So their efficiency on this, and then did that throughout the entire rest of their career. So you could see at any point in time in their career, 
if you looked back what they had done over the last 500 dropbacks, which is roughly a season. I mean, these guys are really dropping back more like 600 times in a season, especially including the playoffs. But I use 500 for a nice round number. So it's it's basically like a rolling average of what they had done over the last season in their careers. What does it look like for these two guys? So what it also does is it helps put into large contrast, you know, early in their careers because they both started playing in 2018. Allen was drafted in 2018. Mahomes was drafted in 2017, but Mahomes did not play other than week 17 um, in a game that the Kansas City Chiefs did not care whether they won or lost. He played there. He played there and he played fairly well in in week 17 uh, for the Chiefs in his rookie season. So if we go through here, you know, Mahomes came firing right out the gate. So he has a number which for basically the first 2000 dropbacks in his career, looking back 500 dropbacks, if you look through there, he's up around 0.3 expected points added per dropback, an excellent number, MVP type of numbers. You know, we're not coming close to that. So Josh Allen in his entire career, even when we're looking at the dropbacks that have happened over the last couple of seasons, when he's been playing at a much higher level, he hasn't come close to that. He was around even on EPA. He moved up to about 0.1 during you know the end of his second season going into the beginning of his third season and he really topped out a little bit over 0.2 EPA per play as his as his peak whereas again Mahomes is point over 0.3 EPA for his peak so substantial substantial difference it's basically the difference between a clear clear MVP and someone who is a top five-ish sort of quarterback and what happened with Mahomes here, and we're talking about the recency bias, is it did fall a lot. It fell all the way near three, two-thirds of the way through last season to about 0.1 EPA. And it fell even below Josh Allen for a little bit, looking back 500 dropbacks. But then what people don't realize is Mahomes was on a tear to end the season last year and in the playoffs himself, other than that second half against the Bengals. They scored a ton of touchdowns in a row against the Steelers. He was maybe not quite as good as Allen in their matchup versus each other, but close. He went on a tear there. And then, of course, he was on a tear in the first half against the Bengals. And even going back to the last few weeks of the season, he was really, really strong there, better than Allen was in some of those matchups. So his number jumped all the way up to almost up to 0.3 EPA again. So even at the end of the season, looking back 500 dropbacks between the two of them, Mahomes is substantially above Allen, although Allen did have that really, really good playoffs, and that's what everyone is focused on here. Um, if you just look over their careers, again, you have to, you can't ignore what happened those first two years, but you can discount it heavily. So if you look at the uh, efficiency that they had for over the course of the entire season, including the playoffs, Mahomes first in 2018, first in 2019. Josh Allen, 24th and 21st. Okay, let's just wipe that out. We're just, just for the sake of this argument, we'll just throw that out the window. So we're throwing out Mahomes being by far the best quarterback in the league, efficiency-wise, his first two seasons, and Allen being in the bottom 10-ish sort of, sort of range. Uh, we're just going to throw that out. So then the last two seasons, on a basis of efficiency, uh, Mahomes has been third and second, with Rodgers being first in in uh in both of those years and being the MVP in those years and Allen has been fifth and fourth so Mahomes is still better so we have a better long-term track record we have a better short-term track record we have a better track record over every time period other than if you split this last season and you say week 15 through the end of the playoffs so you know for a few weeks there at the end 15 16 17 18 which you know, Allen put up some some big numbers in the last game of the season, even though they didn't need it. Uh, if you take those four games and the two playoff games for Allen, the three playoff games for for Mahomes, if you take just those numbers, then Allen was better over that little over that time stretch. Any other period you want to pick throughout their entire careers, you cannot say that that Allen has been better than Mahomes. So when we hear this discussion out there, it's one of those things where I do think Allen can be better than Mahomes going forward. It is possible, but the decision on who you would choose as most likely to be better over the next few years is almost undoubtedly Patrick Mahomes based upon what we've seen in the sample. Uh, Okay. Let me hit a couple of things that people will talk about for the reason why Allen may be better 
than Mahomes. One is Mahomes is not going to have Tyreek Hill. And he's had Tyreek Hill before in the past, one of the most dynamic playmakers that are out there. You know, we'll kind of ignore the fact that pre-Stefan Diggs, we saw that Josh Allen was so bad. But anyway, we'll just say no, no Tyreek Hill. He's going to miss Hill. No doubt about it. He is going to miss Hill. Even though they tried to restock here with, uh, you know, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, with Juju Smith-Schuster, with drafting Sky Moore, he is going to miss Tyreek Hill. No doubt about it. The question is, what sort of evidence do we have of how much he's going to miss Hill? We don't have a lot of evidence. Now, I'm going to use some splits here, and splits are extremely noisy. I'll acknowledge that it doesn't disprove anything. But again, it's a lack of evidence for something that we know is true that he's going to miss Hill, but we just don't know the degree to which he's going to miss him. So over his career, uh, Mahomes has had 653 dropbacks without Hill on the field. So that's like a season's worth, a full season's worth. And he's averaged 0.22 EPA per dropback. In the 2,600 dropbacks he's had with Hill on the field, it's 0.27 rather than 0.22. So only five one hundredths uh, expected points per drop back there that we're talking about a difference. Very, very minimal difference there. Now, this is over his entire career, so there could be a bit of a bias in the fact that like he had a poor season last year when Hill was mostly on the field, and then 2019 was the year that Hill missed the most time because he was injured, and he missed four full games, and he also missed most of another game, so almost five games. In, in 2019. But so even if you look specifically at 2019, so this is about as a stable of a condition that you can get because it's the same personnel, same season. These two guys in that season for 2019, Hill was on the field for 417 dropbacks that season, including the playoffs. And Patrick Mahomes' EPA per play was 0.34, and then the 316 dropbacks where Hill was not on the field, not as much, but a good substantial sum there, he was 0.29. So again, five one-hundredths of of EPA per dropback lower. Still, 0.29 is MVP levels. That is MVP level play that he was without Tyreek Hill. So a little bit of a marginal difference, but we don't have a lot of evidence there for you know, he needed Hill out there, at least in the past. We'll see going forward. We, we never know what's going to happen going forward there. The other thing that I saw commonly on this was talking about the quote-unquote upside that Josh Allen provides. And there were a couple different reasons I think we were hearing this about the upside. One of it was, again, that playoff run that we saw there. So I plotted out a distribution, and I'm going to try to do an article on this so it'll be a little bit easier to visualize, but I plotted out a distribution to say, let's look at all their different starts over the last two years. Again, I'm going to ignore the poor stuff that for, uh, for, for, for Alan. Say, let's look at over the last two years, and let's say, let's look at their expected points added per play. And... Let's say what, like, was their distribution when we look at how often they're performing at a certain level, basically. And if we look at these two guys, the only things that you're finding is on the extreme edge, you have a little bit higher on the extreme stream high edge, but it's a very tiny amount in proportion to all the different games have been played of Allen being better than Mahomes. And that's really just that Patriots playoff game in particular. Where, where he went insane. And in only 29 dropbacks, they scored a touchdown every single time that he had the ball. So that's there. On the down, down, down side, Mahomes had a really poor Super Bowl loss to in that game against the Bucks. But I think most people look at that game and say, hey, it wasn't really that bad. But EPA-wise, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so good. Um, so on the downside, he has a little bit higher on the downside. But if you look at the two peaks of the distributions, Mahomes' most often outcome is around 0.4 EPA per dropback. So in other words, MVP level. He has a much higher distribution going between 0.4 and 0.8. So on that very, very high end. And then Allen's highest part of his peak is a, is more around 0.1, 0.15. And this is only looking at the last two years. So again, maybe on the extreme, extreme, extreme size, if you think that you're going to roll the dice and hit a one out of 
you know, talking about the last two seasons. So a one out of like 40 type of uh, outcome for these guys. So you're going to roll the dice and you're going to hit that over and over and over again. Yeah. Allen could have a little bit more upside, but we're, that's exceedingly small possibilities. We're placing way, way too much focus on how the last couple of games ended the season, ignoring the fact that there were big struggles for Allen during the season against uh, the Bills, against the Dolphins, against others that happened over and over. Not against the Bills. They are the Bills. Against the Jaguars, against the Dolphins, against others during the season where he struggled fairly mightily there. And we seem to have kind of ignored that in our analysis. And the last thing to talk about here, and this is part of uh, Field's motivation on here, was the rushing component when it comes to uh, Allen over Mahomes. So I think the thing that people don't understand is, yeah, Allen has added a lot of value on the positive side rushing the ball. But the the reason why his rushing has not given him as much of an edge as you would expect from a few, pure value standpoint, and it's something that we don't think about enough when we talk about value, is he has fumbled the ball a lot. Okay, he has the most rushing, from, from a rushing perspective, the most fumbles in the NFL over the last two seasons. Just rushing the ball. I'm not talking about getting sacked. I'm not talking about strip sacks. I'm talking about, I'm talking about running the ball. He has the most in the NFL. And he has six lost fumbles over the last two years. He has nine total fumbles, six of them lost. So not an extreme, uh, extremely bad ratio there, but those fumbles are really costly, way more costly than interceptions. Normally they're happening not on third, third and long, but they're happening on good down and distance situations. They happen more often when you're closer to scoring uh, because you're trying to really pick up these high leverage downs or you're you're trying to grind it out in the red zone, something like that. So those lost fumbles for Allen, again, they've been discounted a bit. Maybe they won't continue at the highest level, but they they mitigate a lot of that rushing value. Now, if he can clean that up, I would give a little bit more credence to the upside argument based upon his rushing ability, but we just have not seen him been able to clean it up so far there. Okay, so that's the first hater portion of these quarterback rankings. Okay, the second thing I want to talk about here, this is going to come out a lot. And again, I'm going to have my own rankings eventually where I can compare it more directly to this, but I'm all about hating, not creating at this point. Um, we are looking at another recency bias thing where I just don't understand the changing in rankings with, with two particular players. Because to me, these players have not changed, but the perceptions have changed a lot. And those are Kirk Cousins and Derek Carr. Now, to give you an idea of perceptions changing, uh, I think when Mina did this exercise a couple of years ago, I believe Cousins was in the top 10. It may have been something like 7th or 8th. Now he's down to 14th. Uh, Derek Carr in her rankings is 12th right now, two spots above Kirk Cousins. And then last year for... The athletic football show, which again is supposed to take contracts as being part of this discussion, Derek Carr was not in the top 15 on a very modest contract, modest friendly contract. Now he's 12th and his contract, he got this huge bump in the offseason. So he got a big new contract and they're moving him up to 12th in, in, in these rankings. So I know that there's this popular perception that Carr has been better or something's been unlocked over the last two seasons. But if you look strictly at the grading, and again, the grading is not going to tell you the whole story and the, the efficiency EPA per play is not going to tell you the whole story. There's context. There's all this stuff. I think we may just be backing into a QB wins type of argument here and what's happened with these two guys over the last two seasons. Okay, so let's look first at how they have actually ranked over the last few years. Again, this is when the flip in their perception has hit. So Derek Carr, if you look at his grading, 2019, he was 11th of quarterbacks who had at least 400 dropbacks. 2020, 9th. 2021, 13th. Do we see a fantastical trend there in his direction? No, I, I don't see it. I, I, You know, his his... I don't get exactly what why we're getting too much there. And then let's flip over to EPA. He was eighth in 2019 in his ranking. 
He was 15th in 2020, and he was 18th in 2021. So by these two measures, he actually had his worst season of the last few years. I don't think he had his worst season. I think they had some big problems with Henry Ruggs going down, not having great receiving core. Uh, Waller kind of disappeared off of the face of the earth. So I get how you can you can pull that in there. But still, if you factor in all those contextual things, I'm not sure there's a huge difference, at least year over year, how he was playing in 2021 versus how he was playing in 2020. So why the perception difference on on Carr? Well, let's get right into QB wins here. So if you look at Derek Carr, why he was seen as this guy who maybe was going to be someone the Raiders could move on from several years, uh, going from someone who in 2016, got MVP votes to someone who could potentially be moved on from for many years. But what happened was in 2016, they went 12 and three. And then after that, the number of wins we're going to go through here. So after coming off of 12, so they had 12 wins, then they had six, four, seven, and eight. Never above 500, never making the playoffs. After getting, again, becoming, he was third in the MVP voting in 2016. And then last season, now they went 10 and seven with the perception of the Gruden thing, everything that went down, I think is probably less important. Some people think for really dissolving the team and the perception of not having a lot of pass catchers. So they went 10 and seven, the QB wins, he makes it to the playoffs. It's seen as being one of his, his best, his best seasons because of that. But if you look at what's did substantially change, according to the numbers, the pure um, bloodless, cold numbers here is the Raiders defense got a lot better. So how much credit are we giving Derek Carr through the Raiders record, which came more from defensive improvement than came from the offensive improvement here? The Raiders were a bottom five defense in 2019 and in 2020. And then they came through this last season with about a mid-level defense. And this is a mid-level level defense against a top five most difficult schedule in the, in the NFL where they had to play against, you know, Justin Herbert. They had to play against Patrick Mahomes. They had to play against a better Broncos team with Teddy Bridgewater. They had some hard games this season. And the defense held up extremely well, especially relative to what they had done in the past. So I think a lot of that is flowing into our perception of Carr. And I would have been probably saying that Carr was an underrated guy a couple of years ago, but now saying that Carr is underrated when his perception is the highest it's been versus how his actual performance has been, I think is pretty tough to say. So I'm not knocking on him too much. I'm just saying we're shifting our opinions on him, where in reality, I think he's probably been this guy who's more like a somewhere between quarterback 14 and quarterback 18 in the NFL the entire time where now we're shifting him up the conversation where he's a top 12 quarterback, maybe a borderline top 10 quarterback in some people's minds and moving him around and shifting around so much. is more about the circumstance than anything else. I mean, we're not going to talk about how often a quarterback who's drafted in 2014 now has a breakout in 2021 in some sort of meaningful, different way than how he had played in the past. We just don't have guys who are doing, you know, year eight breakouts is not necessarily something we're going to see a lot. On the flip side, let's go to Kirk Cousins. Cousins was riding high-ish with his perception off of the 2019 season. And again, like he was, he was ranked as a top 10 guy by, on Mina Kimes' podcast when she had done this illustration. I also mentioned he was above Rogers there. (laughs) I'll give you that, which was which was a shocking thing there. Um, but if we look at his numbers, look at Cousins' numbers. Again, we're not we're trying to not get too high, not get too low on these guys. So let's go to Cousins here. 2019, he was sixth in his grading rank. He was tenth in EPA. So then now he's fallen in his stature over the last two seasons. So he was ten and ten in 2020, and then he was seven and eight. So he actually had his best year, probably if you combine those this last season. He had his best grade. Uh, over this last season versus prior years, yet the perception on him has fallen a bit. Well, why has it fallen for him? Well, it's the, again, it's the flip side of the reason why it has gone up for Derek Carr, and that is they're not winning. They're not going to the playoffs in particular. So in 2019, they were 10 and 5 with Cousins as a starter. 
you know, they went to the playoffs. They went all the way to the, I guess it was the, the divisional round in the playoffs. Ended up getting crushed by the 49ers. But still, went through the divisional round in the playoffs. Cousins made the Pro Bowl. People felt pretty good about what was going on with the team. Now, in 2020, they go 7-9, and nine, where Cousins didn't necessarily play that poorly. He pretty much had the same type of season. But uh, burned in people's minds were some poor games that he had to start the season. And they had a poor start to, to that year. So 7-9. and nine. And then last year eight and eight with, with cousins as the starter. So even though he went to the pro bowl again, uh, pro bowl doesn't mean a whole lot, but he did go to the pro bowl again. His perception has fallen after a couple of years of not having a winning record, a couple of years of not going to the playoffs after making the playoffs that year before. So his ranking again is fallen from a top 10 guy for when Mina Kimes podcast to being uh, top four being the 14th. And he's also fallen in the athletic where he just wasn't there in either year. So he's just not like people are not even considering him, but he probably would have fallen based upon that, that contract situation. And again, when we look at what's driving the changes in the team, they, you know, for their total EPA rank, it went from eighth in 2019 for the defense to 25th in 2020. So a big fall there to only being around league average last year. So yeah, Cousins with a league average defense was an average got an average record for a running game that was not producing that well and a special teams that was not producing that well. But still a team where they probably should have been a little bit better than that according to the internals of the team. So the lot of recency bias going into those two guys. And the last thing I'm going to hate on here I, I got a hate on here for sure. A noted uh, Justin Fields hater is the fact that Fields on both of these rankings is much higher than Lance and Wilson. I mean, Lance and Wilson don't show up for the athletic NFL show, whereas Fields is actually 13th here. Probably a lot too much emphasis on his contract there. And then in the Mina Kimes show, I believe Fields was 18th. Lance was a few spots lower. And then Wilson was something like 23rd. I think I'm okay if you want to say Fields above Wilson. But above Lance, I don't quite get because I would rather have a quarterback who was drafted third and did nothing as a rookie than a quarterback who was drafted 11th in Fields and was one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL. And I think people are just leaning way too heavily on their priors when it comes to fields. Listen, you may have thought that field should have been the second pick in the NFL draft, but he wasn't. And you have to adjust somewhat based upon that. And even more so you have to adjust based upon that in conjunction with how he played as a rookie. If you look at their grade rankings for the season, this is of 31 quarterbacks who had at least four, 300 dropbacks. Uh, no, 400 dropbacks last season. Yeah, Fields was 26th, Lawrence was 28th, and Zach Wilson was 29th. But the differences are pretty minor here. I mean, Fields is still worse than Taylor Heineke, Jared Goff, you know, Tua, Carson Wentz, Teddy Bridgewater. Not much better than Ben Roethlisberger last year. So, I mean, he was just really, really bad. These other guys were bad too. Don't get me wrong. But he was really, really bad combined with the fact that he dropped a lot in the draft and he was passed up by multiple teams who needed a quarterback. And if we go to efficiency, uh, expected points added per play for them. So this is going to include some rushing here for fields. Uh, the own fields was dead last 31st of all these 31 quarterbacks. He was dead last in ESPN's QBR, which also gives a lot of value to, to rushing last year. So we have results which say he was either a bottom five quarterback, according to grading, dead last, according to EPA, and he fell in the draft to 11th last year. I don't know how you can still look at all three of those things and say, yeah, this is a guy that you should believe in to turn it around, especially when if you want to be right on your projection, the predictions, you should probably also factor in the fact that the Bears aren't doing anything for this guy. So even if you're kind of correct about everything, Wilson's being put, Zach Wilson's being put in a much, much better situation here where they spent a ton of money on Corey Davis last offseason. They drafted Garrett Wilson. Uh, they have Braxton Berrios c coming back there that they 
that that they spent money on. They have a couple of tight ends that that they brought in. They have Elijah Moore they drafted in the second round last year. They have offensive line they poured money into multiple first round picks on on guys, free agent signings and so on. Like they poured so much into him that he's going to have more potential to at least reach a higher ceiling or a higher floor, even if they are the same guy that you're thinking there. So just for the sake of being right, maybe you'd want to at least say they're about equals going forward, which I think they are. Even though Wilson was drafted higher, he was worse than Fields last year, which which closed the gap between what we should expect. But we can't just go off of the priors, ignore everything. I've seen a lot of people say we're just going to toss out that first year. Well, Fields is not being put in a better position this year. So we're going to toss out his second year too. It's just been folly in the past to toss things out. Sometimes quarterbacks jump up way more than you think they would. Uh, Sometimes they don't based upon what's happening in the first year. But there's a clear correlation with how well you play early in your career combined with the draft position that you have for projecting how well you're going to play out in the past. And if you want to play outliers, if you want to play, I'm going to ignore everything that happened that first year then you could put Fields in this position. Otherwise, I think it's really, really tough to do other than saying we're just going to lean on my evaluation, my you know my group chat's evaluation being better than what the NFL knows and what everyone else knows out there. And for that, we are going to hate. All right, before I get to the next part of the haters ball, and I know that was a, that was a big one there. Uh, I am going to let you know really quickly, if you want to get, again, these QB rankings I'm going to be putting out, a piece I'm going to put out on Mahomes versus Allen, all the stuff that comes this offseason, which includes a ton of fantasy football content that I'm going to put out on the breakout running backs and wide receivers you're going to want to target, so on and so forth. Subscribe to PFF, promo code UNEXPECTED, 25% off all the locked article content, all the rankings. We're going to have a bunch of new stuff Cummings visualizations and ways to interpret uh, fantasy football information on for your seasonal and your weekly DFS sort of play and start sit decisions, all that stuff. All that's available. PFF.com promo code unexpected. Hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it. Okay. The next part of the, of the haters ball here. And I know I spent a lot of time talking about quarterback rankings there, but the next part, and I think this is a fun one, at least fun one for me is I'm going to hate on conspiracy theories in this in this case i'm hating on conspiracy theories related to the nfl schedule and i've seen that a lot of hay is being made at least i'm seeing a lot of hay i don't know if it's happening or not from another person who i like who i've met who i'm friends friends with i call myself internet friends with uh warren sharp about the schedule and the rest differential that we've seen here. Warren put out a analysis via his via NBC Sports Edge. Again, this is like focusing on gambling and things like that about the rest differential between different teams. Giving each team and saying, let's look at when two teams are matching up, how much rest one team has had versus another. And we'll project and we'll add up all of these different differentials throughout the entire course of the season and figure out who has the biggest net differential over the entire season. So Buffalo has a 12 day net edge uh, rest advantage at the top and at the bottom is Green Bay with negative 12. And in fact, he, he spoke with Bill Simmons on Bill Simmons's pod to discuss this in a little bit further detail. And of course, to put a bit of a conspiracy theorist angle on that, I'll play you that clip now. You sent me the teams this year that have the biggest edge and net rest advantage, and Conspiracy Bill was immediately suspicious. <laughs> the five teams you had, the Bills, who I think they would love if the Bills became one of the marquee teams. They already are. The Lions, you know, fun little rags-to-riches possibility. The Broncos with Russell Wilson. And then the Cowboys and the Buccaneers. Conspiracy Bill does not like this. Bills, Cowboys, Buccaneers, those are three of the five best wrestling. So do we think there's any sort of chicanery with that? I've got to be honest. The NFL says that they parse through thousands of iterations of the schedule and they pick the ones that have the best opportunities for these primetime games and they pick the ones that they think are the best. 
they don't put enough emphasis on the schedule um, from a rest perspective. So I don't know that I believe that there is a total conspiracy. But mm. I will say this. There are certain teams that seem to get a lot of benefit of the doubt with the rest historically and consistently. Okay, so one of those teams that he mentions that historically and consistently is getting a benefit of the Dallas Cowboys, who, of course, conspiracy theorists are going to love anything about the Dallas Cowboys here. So I think the important thing is here, again, you can find patterns within noise. So you should always discount any conspiracy theory that's trying to find some sort of pattern within noise, things like that, especially when you're trying to back into the fact that you think the Lions are being advantaged in any sort of way. But even beyond that, I think it's important to say, well, when you're building a schedule, while you want to take rest into consideration, like how important is it? Like how meaningful is it? I know we're talking a lot about, oh, this team has a big rest advantage. How much does 12 net days of rest, what does that mean for you in the schedule? So there are a couple of different ways we can think about it. One, I would say is the back of the envelope way to think about it. And I've done a lot of modeling where you're modeling in if a team has a buy, if a team has rest, what does it mean on a week by week basis? So if one team is facing another team that is coming off of a buy, so that would be, again, your seven day rest differential on average could be more or less depending upon whether the teams are playing on Monday night or not. So your seven day rest differential, what does it mean as far as how you should adjust your modeling and your assumptions on the scoring in this game? And it really comes down to about a point maybe a little bit less than a point. And I've discussed this in the past where if you look at point differential and you try to figure out what that means in terms of wins, although it sounds really, really high, again, this is over courses of seasons, you're going to look at teams at the end of the year, what their point differential was versus their opponents, and then look at their record over or below 500. Every win above 500 is about 32 to 35 points in point differential. Every, you know, every win below 500, again, is the flip side, is a negative 32 or 30 to 35 ish sort of range. So if we're talking about moving a line by a point, maybe a point and a half, you know, that's one 30th of a win is what we're talking about for seven days. And the biggest teams we're seeing here are a 12 day plus or minus. So we're talking about a couple of points is the difference is what it means for an entire season where you where 32 points equals a win. So just from back of the envelope, you're going to say two to three points is what we're talking about. These teams are disadvantaged by. We're talking about maybe like the most the, the team that's the worst here that Green Bay is being disadvantaged by. And first of all, like Green Bay is like one of the most popular teams in the NFL. So like, why would they be disadvantaging them? Um, we're talking about 0.05 ish sort of wins here is what I would do back of the envelope. And luckily for us, uh, Tom Bliss, who works for the NFL who is a data scientist there, he looked at the schedule, strength of schedule metrics, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delineate out rest. How important is rest as far as wins? Like how many plus or minus wins should you expect just based upon rest differentials for these teams? We're going to look at travel advantage plus home field advantage because um, you know, now that we have 17 games, certain teams have more home games than away games there. So we're going to look at that component. We're going to look at how much it matters by how good the teams are in your division, right? So you're, you're just a disadvantage if you play in a, in a tough division versus playing your advantage if you're in a weak division. And then how much of an advantage do you get based upon your non-division schedule? So, you know, every year teams will play every game against one in conference, another division within conference to play every game against another conference, another division outside of their conference. And then there's a smattering of games there that come into play, whether or not you are the you know, first place team in your division versus the first place schedule or the last place team, what happens there and all that gets wrapped into there. So let's look at all these different components and try to figure out what actually matters here. What should we be talking about? What should we be caring about? What should we even spend the time to waste any time thinking about whether or not there is a conspiracy theory? And rest by far and away has the least impact as far as these things are concerned. In fact, the most 
detrimental schedule in terms of rest. Again, the Green Bay Packers, we're talking about 0.06 wins. Six one-hundredths of a win differential here. About what I estimated using this, this point estimate based upon modeling on games. That's what they have here. The team with the biggest advantages... Uh, the number one team with the biggest advantage here, again, let's go to who is at the top. The Bills, 0. 0.03. That is not – do you think there's a conspiracy theory in the NFL to get the Bills three one-hundredths of a win this year? Do you think there's a conspiracy theory in the NFL? Again, let's go to the Dallas Cowboys. They're also three one-hundredths of a win. Do we think – do we think there's a big there's a big conspiracy theory there? Detroit Lions. Oh, they're four one hundredths of a win. Oh, I see the conspiracy theory there. They're really trying to get them pumped up there. Uh the Denver Broncos. Oh, conspiracy theory. Let's figure it out here. What are they looking at this year from from the Broncos as far as a win? Ooh, 0. 0.02 wins. I mean, it's nothing. The home and the travel uh ranges between uh 0.15. So, and again, like we're talking about amounts that are four or five times higher just based upon travel differences that we're having here. And then if you look at divisional records, divisional advantage, you get, I mean, the Buccaneers are getting 0.64 off of the fact of where the division that they're playing in here. So we're talking about, again, this is 30, 40 times more important than these rest differentials. And then certain teams like, I don't know, the Raiders, it's minus. 0.6 wins. So this is minus 0.6 wins as opposed to, you know, again, 10 times bigger difference than what, than what we're talking about for the, the rest differentials. And in non-division, again, we're going to range anywhere from about half a win in either direction is being forced by these schedules. So there are lots of randomness built into these schedules based upon who happens to be in your division, who happens to be out of your division, how much travel you're having, whether you're having a home game or not. All those things are giantly more important than this rest differential, which is basically meaningless. So we should not be spending any time really talking about it. And I thought there was a funny comment below the clip. There's this ringer clip with Bill Simmons and, and Sharp Football. And I think this really plays into what ends up happening with this thing is there's a guy who who tweeted here. Uh, I guess I'll give him a shout out here at the real Rusty S. I'm not sure how many people care about other Rusty S's, but he, he he tweets. He says, I used to make little league schedules. And first I made the numbers. First, what he had to do was he made the numbers just he made the schedule out with just team numbers. He didn't actually put the teams in there. And then he handed out the schedules to the coaches. This is for little league, mind you. Then he handed out the schedules to the coaches and they meeting. And then they picked numbers out of a hat to determine which team went in which area because when he just did the schedule and put the teams in there, even for little league, he, he, his, I'm quoting him here because there was always some asshole that thought there was a conspiracy. Like there's always someone who can look into and find a conspiracy. But the first thing you should really think about when you're thinking about conspiracy, not only the unlikelihood that there is a conspiracy, which is, you know, like 99.99999%, but the fact that it doesn't even matter what's happening with rest. So we are going to hate we're going to hate heavily on conspiracy theories, outrage, trolling, trying to get something going here when there's no reason to do it and there's no even analytical basis for figuring out why it matters. That's what we're going to hate on. Okay, and now let's get to a couple other things I got to hate on. One of them is ESPN's FPI rankings, their football power index. I'm going to have Seth Walder on the pod again. I like people at ESPN and other places. But I'm going to have to hate a little bit on this, and then I'll give them a chance in a future episode to combat what's going on here. I went over some team tiers last week, and one of the big takeaways was when you're, when you're, when you're projecting how good these teams are, a very common way of doing it, how they do it in FPI, how I was going through them based upon the market betting market values, is you say, how good is a team on a neutral field against a league average opponent how many points would you expect they would win or lose by? That's a good way of doing it. And one of the big takeaways when looking at the early preseason numbers for this is that there's more uncertainty before you start the season than once you start to get into the season. What, you know, when you see how, a, how well a player is playing or a, or a unit is playing in weeks one, two, three, four, you know much more about how good they're going to be in week five than you did before week one. 
you know a lot more about what injuries may happen at that point. A lot more things are proven. So because of that, the distribution of numbers, you know, how many plus how many points you'd expect, how many points you'd expect the best team in the league to win by or the worst team in the league to lose by is a more narrow range than it should be during the season. And that's what we're seeing in the betting markets. The Bills are about five points better than an average team on a neutral field, and they're the best team. The worst team, the Texans here, are 5.8 worse than a team on a neutral field. Whereas if you looked at the end of last season, that number would have been more like eight, nine points on the high end and 10, 11 points on the low end. We were kind of more confident in the worst teams at that point. So again, it's narrowed going into this season. FPI has just said, ah, screw that. We're going in the other direction. FPI's rankings has the Bills at the top plus 9.4, which would be almost higher than what I would have had them during the middle of last season, the end of last season. And the Bears minus 13.2, 13.2 points worse than an average team on a neutral field. And this is what it says here. It says, it's our best estimate for how strong a team is relative to a league average opponent. That's that's what they say they're doing there. Now, what they've done this year is they've taken the betting markets out of their their formulation. And I think that's a that's a big, big mistake and an overconfident mistake. And when you end up modeling based upon the past, you could do something called overfitting, where for the Bears and the Jets, the Jets are t- minus 12.8 and the Jaguars to agree, minus 8.2, Texans minus 12. You know, all these teams had these second year quarterbacks who did not play well as rookies. So I talked about about this a bit earlier. Yeah, it really matters like what your what you did as a rookie, figuring out what you're going to do in the past, but it's unstable. Like it's directionally there, but there's a lot of noise around there, so you shouldn't have necessarily a ton of confidence even if directionally you can project pretty well what they're going to do the next year. It seems like because all of these guys were so poor in QBR that I don't know if they're making a rookie adjustment for this. I don't know what's going on, but they seem to just really expect piss poor quarterback play to continue this season for these teams where we know there should be a lot, a lot, a lot more noise around that. There's no way that the, the markets are saying right now, the bears are 3.1 points worse than your average team. And then FPI is saying they're 13 points worse. Now I know they're making some adjustments in, in the matchup as far as matchups are concerned, but you would just have some absurd numbers where these teams are matching up against each other, where, you know, if the bears are playing against the Packers, let's say. One team is 13.2 points in one direction. The other is 8.8 points in the other direction. So we're talking about the Packers should be favored by, you know, 22 points, 23 points. If they're playing at home, maybe even a higher amount. I mean, there's just no way that that is possible. And I know they're making adjustments to it, so they don't necessarily see it in that exact sort of way. But these numbers are just just way, way too high. And again, it becomes a thing of like, let's respect the market. Let's respect what's going on in the market. Let's realize that there's tons of stuff built into it, then that not only you can't model, but your modeling may be overfit based upon what is happening in the past. And yeah, maybe there's been quarterbacks who were last in QBR who rarely did well going forward. But with someone like Justin Fields, he could be horrible this year, but he also could be making a second year leap that we don't know about. And I do not think that is accurately being placed into these projections. And for that reason, it's something, again, I will give... Uh, Seth Walder a chance to rebut this going forward, but it's something for now that I am going to have to hate on. Okay, and one of the last things here, and this is more of a hating on a system, hating on the concept of doing things the way things have always been done for reasons that seem like they're actually detrimental to your your said stated goal and your obvious goal here. And that is this front office FaceTime front office grind that was being illustrated heavily by an article by Zach Kiefer in the athletic about the scouting department and focusing, focusing specifically on Colt assistant GM Ed Dodds. And the article was titled Colt assistant GM Ed Dodds passes on other NFL jobs to keep the process rolling in Indy. Listen, I like the Colts. I like Chris Ballard. I think he's doing a fine enough job here. But when you listen to some of the practices here, not only are they seem to be cruel in their time commitment, lack of probably being able to be involved with your with your family and other people on here, but they don't even seem like it would help. And that is 
I'm going to read you a quote on what they were doing leading up to the draft for the, the Colts and their scouting department. It says, this year, they took just four days off from mid-December through draft weekend in late April. So again, we're talking about half of December, January, February, March, April. We're talking about four and a half months, more than a third of the year, you know, 40% of the year. You want to round up close enough to half of the year. You're working 136 out of 140 days. And during those days, the hours are 7.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. on the weekdays, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on the weekends. So that is 60 hours during those five days during the week. And then we're throwing in an additional 12 hours on the ends. We're talking about 72 hours, not including travel, not including whatever else going into it, not including, I'm sure some of these guys are doing more work after that. They got to travel from place to another. So we're talking about like a minimum of 72 hours, more like an 80 hour commitment. And this seems to be pretty hard and locked in. Sometimes people overestimate quite often how much they work every week. Everyone's like, oh, I work 100 hour weeks. There's no, I like, that's impossible almost to work, actually be working 100 hours a week. But this seems like this really is locked in at a minimum of 72. I mean, there's been study after study that's done that has shown that after about 55, 60 hours, you're so burnt out mentally and your concentration is so low that you're not really getting any incremental benefit off of studying there normally. More studying, more work in in that way. Now, I could understand maybe... If you're a surgeon who needs to do things, if you're a lawyer who's getting who's billing people by the hour, there can be a benefit for working more and more hours. Maybe even as a coach, I get it a little bit more that you're studying. You can really get incremental benefits off of it. But as a scout, I just don't know if it's possible at a certain point you're actually flipping over to it being detrimental because you should be constantly like again, we you could just draft off of the big board and do pretty well, a consensus big board of what's going on. Each additional piece of information that you're bringing in, you risk overweighting a less important piece of information for the belief that you found some unique nugget that plays into what you're doing there. Like being able to weigh um weigh those properly is very, very important. So what I think this is about more than anything else is an existing culture. Right. And it goes into here that Dodds came from the Seahawks and he says John Schneider, who hired him, uh, told him, you know, it's best not to think about the finish line. Just keep your head down. Keep on going. He tells people, let's not even think about when meetings are supposed to end. It'll go better that way. I mean, it sounds really nightmarish to have to just grind out like that. So he learned it from from someone else. So that's one thing we're like passing on the existing way of doing things without thinking about is this actually the best way of doing things? You, you don't automatically just associate working harder and longer as being a better result at the end. It's not just noble, while it may be noble in some sort of way in your mind in and of itself, um, it doesn't necessarily lead to a best result. And that's ultimately what we want to focus on is whether it leads to a, a better result in the end. So, so that's number one. It's just tradition that we're talking about here. And number two is, I think it feeds into this big thing that I've talked about before. It's not risk aversion that drives a lot of decision-making. It is regret aversion. And as a scout, while you may know the large degree of uncertainty for all these different product uh, prospects, if you think, if we grind as hard as humanly possible, as humanly possible, then... We submit ourselves to this random process, which we kind of know there is randomness. There is a ton of uncertainty in it. We can think that we can control it a little bit better than others. So we will, we'll, we won't regret not having that control. And either side of the equation, if things go well, we feel really, really good about what we did there. So you feel really, really good and you don't regret at all putting in all those those hours. And if things don't go well, you can turn to, well, we know that it's random and we did all we could and we feel less worse, less worse, less bad <laughs> about what ended up happening because we put in all those hours. We'll have a little bit less regret. If we didn't grind the 72 plus hours a week, if we didn't miss our families, basically, for for an entire half a year doing all this, then we'd feel a little bit more regression, um, 
regret and we think, God, we could have done a little bit more. And if we just would have done a little bit more then we would have had it. It's, it's the illusion of having some sort of control over this, this random process. And it's not to say that scouting isn't worth it. It's not to say that every team should be just drafting off a big board. And you don't get any insights off it. It's to say, how do we maximize maybe spending more time refining the big picture stuff rather than trying to grind through every little thing and, and know every little piece of uncertainty. When I agree, if you look backwards, there's always a reason you could say, Oh, I get why this prospect missed. I get why this prospect missed. I get why this, why this prospect mix missed, but you can never necessarily grind your way with more hours to being able to eliminate that going forward. I mean, for the very least, let's just look at the fact that he came from the Seahawks and, and John Schneider. Now at one point in time, you would have said, well, this dude doesn't miss, right? And that's probably when he came from uh, Schneider in the past is it's like this dude does not does not really miss as far as those drafts that they had there uh, for the Seahawks. So let's look at the Seahawks drafts. Again, this is when you start to realize that I doubt that the process has changed a ton, right? over the years for the Seahawks, but the results have been really all over the place. Now, what you're going to look to for the Seahawks is you're going to say, okay, here's what we did. Came in starting in, I guess we would say 2011, right? We get Richard Sherman in the fifth round. We get KJ Wright in the fourth round. We get Byron Maxwell, who was pretty good for them until, and then he kind of fell off when he went to the Eagles in the sixth round. Malcolm Smith, we get him in the seventh round, just boom, boom, boom. You're hitting a lot. Actually, going back to 2010, Earl Thomas in the first round, Golden Tate in the second, in the second round. You're you're hitting some dudes there. So 2010, 2011, 2012 is really the mother load here. Cause then you get Bobby Wagner, you get Russell Wilson in the third round. You just crush there. Absolutely crush over those that three-year time period. But then after that, like who is the highest level player? that we can point to with having the most uh, I'm just looking at approximate value here because this is, I'm just looking at their draft history on pro football reference. Uh, Justin Britt as a tackle was okay in 2014. Uh, Frank Clark is pretty good. Actually they traded him away. So they, they got a lot of value off of him. Tyler Lockett. Yeah. That's not, not a bad draft pick, but a lot of these guys, it's like no one's coming close to the numbers that we're talking about for Bobby Wagner, his weighted uh, approximate value, 110, right? The closest guys that we're talking about here are like 50 for Tyler Lockett. So you're not having any draft picks that are really coming close to hitting there. And then it's just been really, really poor the last few years, other than maybe DK Metcalf uh, going off at the end of the second round, like nobody is really hitting there. So this is the same team, the same process, the same grind. And you just have to recognize the, the randomness and the, and the luck involved into it. So that's why with all the time being spent on here, what really should you spend is spending the most time on is figuring out like, how do we lean the correct way for positional value to get a little bit more here? Again, something the Seahawks have been really, really bad at recently. They're okay this year, but really bad at le- recently, just leaning in the right di- direction in positional value. How do we trade to get a little bit of extra value out of it? That's like locked in value. That is very good. They do that on the Colts, but is that Dodds in the scouting department grinding? Do you need to grind 72 hours a week in order to be learn how to try to trade back and be opportunistic about that? No, you don't need to do that at all. You need to maybe spend a lot more time game planning and doing scenarios on how the draft unfolds. I would say you should be spending much, much more time on, on doing scenarios and game planning and game theory on how the draft will unfold and how you should move around and replaying that over and over again. I'd much rather do that and have that down pat than to spend more and more time scouting certain players beyond where you should be. So it's doing those sorts of things where you know you can tilt the odds in your favor, but you're never going to be able to grind your way into eliminating the luck and putting yourself on that sort of level that it seems like teams that are working like this, the Dodds and what they're doing with the Colts and probably doing in a lot of other places are working like this to be able to get that advantage. It does not seem like it's something that's going to happen. And as a person who, you know, likes to lead a life of leisure myself, read some books, do some other things, hang out with my kids, I'm going to have to hate on the work-life balance here, which probably isn't actually even producing good results for the Colts and for others. (laughs) All right, guys, this was the first annual Haters Ball. Thanks so much for 
tuning in, although I could probably do one of these every single week with all the things that I find to hate on. Later this week, Sean Clement. I'm actually going to talk to him tonight, but we're not going to put it out probably until Wednesday. Sean Clement, former analyst uh, doing analytical work and R&D departments for the Ravens and the Dolphins. I'm hoping that he's not he's, he's not going to want to get back into another front office in the future so I can get some dirt from him. But I'm sure we'll have an intelligent, uh, good conversation, dig into a lot of stuff there. Sometimes it's better to talk to guys who aren't currently there versus those who are. Uh, but at the very least, we'll have a good high-level discussion with what's really going on with some of the best front offices. Actually, no other guys with the Dolphins. They have a pretty good team there for what they're doing analytically. And of course, the Ravens being our Ravens, they have a lot a lot to say there. So you're going to check that out later this week, and we'll probably keep this format going forward of one solo episode to start the week to review everything that happened the prior week and weekend, and then an interview with some of the top analytical minds out there or other NFL analysts I feel like are some of the smartest dudes in the industry. But until then... Everyone, thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll be talking at you all next week. Thanks so much.